0: 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God... "'Abides forever. "'Children, it is the last hour. "'As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, "'so now many Antichrists have come. "'Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. "'They went out from us, but they were not of us. "'For if they had been of us, "'they would have continued with us. "'But they went out.'" that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. He who, no one desi- denies the Son has the Father. that you received from him, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just that it has taught you, abide in him. Uh, all right, uh, let's take a look at 1 John chapter two uh this morning uh and before we dig into there uh, there's just the recognition that there are some hard questions in life we, we we deal with difficult questions we deal with the kind of questions that philosophers stay up late at night trying to solve and spend an entire lifetime trying to figure out questions like is a hot dog a sandwich I don't know what you think. Is a hot dog a sandwich or not a sandwich? In fact, I spent some time on the Internet this week. One-third of the entire Internet is committed to this question. There is a subset that say it's not a sandwich. It's a taco. I'll see what that does to your mind. Uh, Other hard questions to try to figure out today uh, is how do they get that little ship inside of the bottle? How how do they do that? Do they shrink it once it's in there? How does that uh, function in that place? And, And then another hard question to think about. If I were to restore a 1971 C10 Chevy pickup truck piece by piece by piece by piece until I had restored every single part in that truck, Would it be a new truck or an old truck? If all the pieces are brand new pieces, is it an old truck or a new truck? There are hard questions for us to deal with. But in our passage of Scripture this morning, the the, the hard question for us to deal with, the hard question that comes before us in this passage of Scripture is the question, can you cease to be a Christian? Can you cease to be a Christian, Is it possible for one day or one season in your life to be a follower of God in all things and then for there to be another day in which you are not? That is the question that is the crux of this passage, the heart and also the difficulty in the passage of Scripture that we're dealing with. You see, there used to be those who used to be believers and it seems as though they're not anymore. They they were part of the faith. They were part of the community. They were part of the church. And now it tells us that they have gone out. What does that mean? In some ways, this is really just an amplification of the question that we looked at last week. Remember, the question we looked at last week is, what happens if a believer sins after they get saved? And one of the things that that we discovered is that Jesus came to forgive all sin. And that there's no sin that is outside of the category of His forgiveness. But now the question is amplified. It's turned up to 11 and says, what happens if a person seems to walk away from their faith? What about the person who used to sit next to us and they don't anymore? They, 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 They just seem to have walked out. In fact, Sometimes it seems as though they've rejected what they once believed. One of the things that I find interesting is that the early church is already dealing with this question. Hey, it feels like an incredibly modern question to deal with. It seems more like a 21st century question to deal with than a first century question. But here it is John is writing to the church there in Ephesus, and this is a follow up letter to his gospel in which he says, Listen, now that you've said that you're going to be a follower of Jesus, how's that going? And one of the things that he has to deal with in these opening paragraphs is, What about the person who used to sit next to you in church and doesn't anymore? What, what, what is their status? What, what is up with that? Where do we file this question? It's a long-term question that we have to deal with in church, and it impacts us several different ways. It, 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 impacts, us, it impacts us emotionally. It, it impacts us emotionally in terms of the, the people that we're talking about. Those are people that we know. Those are people that we love. Those are people that we care about. It, it impacts us relationally. It's incredibly discouraging to have a person that you are walking side by side with in faith. And, and then they don't. As a pastor it's, it's discouraging. It's discouraging to baptize somebody and hear them make this profession of faith before the entire room and say, this is where I stand. And then you can't find where they stand anymore. It's hard. It's a It's a deep question for us to wrestle with theologically. What is the right answer to this question? And then I think that there's another part of it that really kind of hits us. Because I think if we're honest, we have just a moment or two where it kind of hits us personally. And we wonder, what if that happens to me? If this is a person that I walk side by side with, this is a person that I I shared faith with, that we had such a similar journey, we had the same beliefs, we had the same experiences. And if you would have looked at us seven years ago, we were the same. And then today, how do I know that's not going to happen to me? It's a hard question. So how do we answer that question? We have a little bit of a temptation to pontificate. I wanted to use that phrase today. A temptation to pontificate. And when we answer this question, we want to say, well, here's what I think, or you know what makes sense to me, or this seems right, or this seems wrong to me. As far as I can tell, here's the logical answer to that question. That's cool but it's not our calling. It is not our calling to pontificate and give our opinion or to measure up. here's what makes sense to me or here's my logic. Our calling is to find out what is it that God says through scripture in passages like this. So is it possible to cease to be a Christian? Let's see what the word of God says. The the first thing that we need to do as we try to unpack this question this morning, is to ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? And, and we struggle with that question sometimes. I'll be honest with you, I shared not too long ago uh, in at least one place my own challenges when I was, when I was little. But that I was pretty sure that I was saved. But a little bit not sure. and I, I think I did it the right way. I think I said the right things. I think I did the right things. I think God heard me, but what if he didn't? And so, personally, I know a little bit of what it's like to go on a little merry-go-round of doubt. This is maybe, maybe not. I don't know. What does it mean to be saved? Well, we can answer that with a little bit of theological thinking. In fact, we can answer that with a little bit of theological tension. There are a couple of places where we got to hold on to this word and this word at the same time. Scripture reveals these words. We need to see Jesus as our Savior, the person who forgives our sins, the person who died for us. But he also tells us that we need to see Jesus as our Lord, our master, our boss, our ruler. And so what does it mean to be saved? Scripture tells us that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. He is the forgiver, but He is also to be in charge of our lives. What does it mean to be saved? We need to come to the place where we depend on Jesus with our whole lives. Where do I stand before God? I stand with Jesus and I depend on Him. And we come to the place where we devote our whole lives to Jesus. Where do I stand with God? It's entirely Jesus. How do I spend my life? It's entirely Jesus. We live under His grace. And we live under His authority. I read this week somebody had posted this. That Jesus forgives us. And He forms us. These are the theological truths. These are the tensions that we are supposed to hold. He is Savior. He is Lord. We depend on Him. We are devoted to Him. We live under His grace. We live under His authority. He forgives us. And... He forms us. He shapes us. He changes us. But there's one more thing for us to hear in this passage, and that is not just a theological tension, but as an experiential reality. Because, you see, it's not just our confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord, but when we do that, something happens inside of us. In fact, this passage of scripture is talking about those who went out, those who went away, and we're gonna we're gonna come and double back on those folks in just a minute. But we talked about those who went out and are no longer with us. He talks about them. He says, "But you, you, you were anointed." This isn't just a physical, someone pouring oil over your head, but this is something, something has come over you because our salvation is more than just intellectual. It's not just a performative checklist. It is the fact that the God, the living God, dwells in us. And we have a brand new life. And we have moved from death to life. We have been born again. There is a starting point for our lives. It is real, it is spiritual, it is divine, and it is eternal. Something has happened to you. It's not just theological tension, believing the right things, but something actually happens. The Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. And so one of the things that he tells us is, listen, these are the things that you have to know, Savior and Lord. But as he talks about your faith and the strength and the abiding of your faith, he says, something happened to you. You were anointed by the Spirit of God. It's a real life experience. Now, what about those who leave? I mean, we can say, well, well, I understand all of those things, Pastor Tim. I understand what John is, is saying here in this passage, but that doesn't change the fact that the person who used to sit next to me isn't here anymore. What happens to those who leave? well, I want to take all of these words as seriously as I can. There is a part of this that John says, the Spirit of God says, some of those folks that leave, well, their leaving tells us what we need to know leaving tells us what we need to know. And I want you to hold on to that because we're going to finish that sentence in just a moment. But I think that I think that what John is saying, he says that not everyone who looks like they're a believer are truly a believer. Not everyone who performs the checklist is truly a believer. Listen, we we celebrate lives changed in that baptistry. But that baptistry isn't where someone's life has changed. You can get wet six times a day. But if that doesn't reveal the reality of what happened. And there is a truth that whether some people misunderstand, whether they are pressured by somebody else, whether they are just trying to mimic the outside without embracing the inside, there are folks who go through some of the same routines, speak the same words, and do the same things that we do. But their lack of endurance in the faith tells us something about the reality of that faith. That's just what the text is telling us here in this passage. Now, it really gets intense here because John starts to throw around words like Antichrist. And he says, those people who have gone out, they are antichrists. Whoa, 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 <laughs> well, What are we saying here? When, when he says antichrist, he is talking about those who are opposite Christ. They are opposed to Christ. Here he talks specifically about there are those who deny Christ. When he talks about denying Christ here in verse 22, he he talks about the fact that they deny that Jesus was the Christ, and they deny that Jesus is God. Now, part of what I want you to hear today is, this is not a statement of theological precision. This is not being an academic. This is not getting all of the words right. When, we, when he is talking here about denying that Jesus is God and the denying that Jesus is the Christ, this isn't having using the wrong words to describe theology. This is cutting yourself off from the pathway. to see, to deny Jesus as Christ, deny Jesus as God, it's not really about theology. It is about pathway. That's the only way to God. And so when he talks here about denying, he is talking about someone who holds a stiff arm to the means of God. He is saying someone who waves a finger at the pathway that God has said, this is how you come to know me. And so if you deny that, if you become opposed to Christ and say, I would like to find salvation someplace else, then that is the spirit of antichrist. It is opposed to Christ. It is saying what Jesus did, no thanks. There's not a backup plan. We talked about that last week. But hear this. Hear this. This is not about God changing his mind. This is not about God changing his mind. He he says here in this passage, they went out. But you, you were anointed. You were anointed. You were transformed by a real event. You were given eternal life. By the promise of God. You know how long eternal life is? It's in the Word. It's eternal. If you have been given eternal life by the promise of God, you can get scrap paper out if you need to. If you have been given eternal life by the promise of God, how long will it last? Eternity. It's in the word. It's in the definition. So yes, there may be some who have gone out because for whatever reason, they were never really apart. And they have denied and cut off the pathway by which God worked. But this is not about God changing his mind. You have been anointed, transformed by a real event that happened in your life. You have been given eternal life as promised by God himself. Get a tattoo. It's that real. You have eternal life promised by God himself. This is not some kind of lifetime warranty that we get with something that we buy at the store that means it is good until something goes wrong. You ever get one of those warranties? I try to take it back. My, my, my car battery doesn't work anymore. It's under warranty. well, it's only good until a, as long as it holds a charge. I'm like hey, it's a lifetime warranty. Well, you know it's the lifetime of you know the piece of paper., hey, what are you talking about? It's not this kind of lifetime warranty. It's God's word. You have eternal life. Why does John care so much? Well, in part because it's true, but in part because it's personal. John stood right next to his best friend Peter. He was at the fireplace, the fire pit, with his best friend Peter. When someone asked Peter, Hey, aren't you one of the Jesus people? Didn't I see you with Jesus earlier? Aren't you one of his disciples? And John was standing right next to his best friend, Peter. Peter once, twice, three times said no. And he cursed to pull up all the bluster he could and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I am not with Jesus. feels like someone who walked away, doesn't it? But if you turn back to the last page of John's Gospel, he doesn't finish the story until he makes it clear that Jesus has never written Peter off. And the story of Jesus, his resurrection, is never completed in John's eyes. Until he's seen the restoration of Peter. You have eternal life, Peter. And I believe that John included that. Because the Spirit of the Lord told him to include it. I believe he included it because people in that day wondered, what about Peter? Did you hear what Peter did? Yes. But he is restored because Peter has eternal life. He included it because you and I needed to know what happened to Peter. And I believe he included it because Peter, every once, while, every once in a while, needed to be reminded. When he would think about his denials, and he would think about how he cursed to try to separate himself from Jesus. John says, My dear friend, you are restored in Christ. Because you have eternal life as promised by Jesus himself. It really comes down to the question does true grace, does a true gift come with strings attached? Does a true gift come with strings attached? We seem to think that grace is salvation at a deep discount. You can't earn it yourself, but if it comes at a 60% discount, act now. You don't want to miss this deal. And so we, we can't get all the way here, but, but grace discounts it here so that it kind of meets us someplace where we can get to. not what grace is. Grace is a gift wholly and completely gives us what we have zero ability to get to for ourselves. And if that gift was free to gain, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, it is free to keep. It is free to keep. If you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. It's still His account. You got in through Him, and you're going to stay in through Him. I've always kind of wondered, this question has this premise that says that there's a line that we have to keep as believers. And and if our lives ever fall beneath that line, then we might cease to be Christians. That, that's, that's the premise that we're working with here. But I, but I always wonder, where is the line? Just just how good do I have to be before I fall beneath that line? Oh, what, do, I, do I have to be better than most? Do I have to be better than some? Do I have to be better than I used to be? Do I have to be better on most days? Do I I get six days in a row? Do I just have to be good on Sundays? What does it take to stay above that line? John has just reminded us that Jesus forgives all sins. All sins. You see, this kind of bothers us because there are times that we look at it, particularly when we're looking at other people, where it doesn't seem fair or right or logical. Why would Jesus keep forgiving sin? Why would Jesus continue to forgive someone who doesn't even seem to care? Here's the reality. We don't really want fair or right. Trust me on that. Trust me on that. We we, we don't really want fair or right. We have to understand that a gift is a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God. Lest anyone should get the crazy idea of boasting or bragging. My translation Imagine if somebody gave you a Super Bowl ring. Maybe Tom Rathman from the 1989 49ers is your uncle. Maybe you just ran into Tom Brady at the airport and he had a spare. And just gave you a Super Bowl ring. You can spend the rest of your days with a Super Bowl ring. You can spend the rest of your days wearing that Super Bowl ring. It's yours. It's your Super Bowl ring. But here's what you can't do. You can't claim you were on the team. You can't be telling the stories about the time it was third and 18, and you went deep along the right-hand sideline, and you made this incredible catch. No, somebody gave you a ring. That's the story. They gave you a ring. You didn't earn that. You weren't on the team. It was a gift. And because we're so concerned that someone else might not be taking their faith seriously enough, we have drawn this imaginary line that says, I was saved by a gift of God. But man... I've staved above the line ever since. You have not. It was a gift. Was a gift, is a gift, always will be a gift. You were never on the team. It was a gift. It was a gift. So what does this mean? Well, one of the things I want you to understand is that if you are in Christ, He is in you. You are anointed. You have an experience. It is a gift, and He's not changing His mind. And that's true about some other people in your life as well. But I'll also say, and I'll try to squeeze this in as fast as I can. If you notice that the lead up to this passage that we haven't really spent a lot of time in, going back to verse 15, the the lead up to this is a conversation about the love of the world. Let me sum it up for you. Don't do it. He says, don't love the world, don't love the things of the world, don't love the the, 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 the prizes of this world, the pride of this world. He says, because it is opposite of God and it isn't going to last. He says, if you want to stay strong, if you want to stay vibrant, if you want to stay alive, if you want to stay unwavering in your faith, watch where your heart is. Watch who is discipling you. Watch who is telling you what matters. This world, man, they they want to tell you a completely different story. And if we fall in love with the world and the things of the world, the pleasures of this world, the stuff of this world, it's going to pull our heart in a different direction. Now, the question that comes up all the time is, does a Christian have to go to church? I, I, I believe in Jesus. I love God. I, I, don't, I don't have to go to church. Well, well, first of all, almost all of Scripture is written to people who are in the community of faith, the gathering of people together. He gives us instructions for a tabernacle, for a temple, for synagogues, and for a church. He calls and says, Do not forsake the assembling, the gathering together. But I'll just tell you from a practical standpoint, it's tough out there. I don't know whether you knew that or not. It's tough out there. And you need to be in a household of faith in a place of worship where Jesus is lifted up so that you can be refreshed. And that presence of Jesus inside of you can be renewed and encouraged and strengthened and you can abide in Him. It is tough out there. And if we want to stay faithful, God's gift to us is the gathering of His people, the teaching of His Word, the corporate worship together. And if you are a leader in this church, you are to hear how much the people of this church need to be refreshed in their faith every time we gather. So as you're a greeter, as you're a small group Teacher, as you're the friendliest person on the row, if you're on the outside of the row, that makes you a leader in the life of our church. People can't get to their seats without going past you. Part of the role of this church is to refresh people who have been doing battle all week long with the voices of this world. It's our job to say that they are loved by God, that you are loved by God, that you are called to be a saint, and you are welcome right here in this place. Because we want to affirm and strengthen people in their faith. God doesn't change his mind. But boy, this world wants to speak a lot of other truths into your life. To distract you, to discourage you, to disrupt you. Nobody knows <laughs> as well as I do that this church ain't perfect from the pastor on down. But this place exists to help you stay strong in your walk with God. To refresh you. To renew you. To encourage you. Be here. Be refreshed. Be here. Refresh the person sitting next to you. Let's do this for a payment. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we've been faithful to your word today. Lord, I pray that we've spoken the same emphasis that you would have us to speak. I pray that we've gotten information and facts correct. But Lord, I also pray that we've spoken to hearts, hearts that have some places that are exposed around this topic. Hearts that maybe have become callous around this topic. I don't know. But Lord, would your spirit do a work in this place through your word? We pray this in your name. Amen.